Good morning. Today's reading is from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under in heaven and of which I, Paul, had become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. I just realized before I stepped up here um, that a warning was in order. Um, You've entered a danger zone this Sunday morning. Can any of you think of what it might be? There's no second service. So... Okay, I'll try to control myself, but (laughs) the 11 o'clock looming service seems to impose its will upon me (laughs) sometimes in the middle of a sermon, and that imposition, that will is no longer there. So God bless you, and here we go. In 1543, a book was published, obviously more than one book, but This one was huge. The title of the book was On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres. Now you might say, well, I've never heard of the book, but you've heard of the person. His name is Copernicus. It was actually in the same year as his death that the book was published, and the theory that he'd been working on for decades had already been developed long before the publication. But the publication of Copernicus's work changed everything. Because before Copernicus, we had what you might call a Ptolemaic view of the universe, right? It came from Ptolemy, who was an astronomer at about 100 AD, so not long after the birth and death of Christ. And Ptolemy said that our universe looks like this. You might as well just turn your eye over here for the rest of the time because the sun's on that screen. We're the center of the universe. And as you see, the moon circles around us. That's an orbit, and it made sense. And then beyond the moon, you had Mercury, and then Venus. And then beyond Venus, you had the sun. Again, circling the earth, we were the center of everything. And then you see uh, uh, on the next line, Mars and then Jupiter and, and Saturn. And then out there you see the stars, which were infinite in number according to Ptolemy. And he had no idea what to do with them. They were just 
out there. But he and every other astronomer at that time was convinced that we were the center of the universe and everything revolved around us. And you say, well, how silly of them. No, not how silly of them. Actually, it seemed right. Everything about it seemed right. The sun rose and the sun set and it went around us. It was a matter of perspective, wasn't it? And still today, you look out at the universe and you feel, even if you don't think, you feel that you're right in the center of it, don't you? Of course, this particular view of the universe was wrong. But it was remarkable too. There were lots of things that came from it. We realized from this view of the universe that Ptolemy and other people actually predicted times for sunrise, sunset, length of days. They realized that this particular model of the universe could affect crop rotation, and it did very accurately and very well. As a matter of fact, it predicted a lot of things very accurately and very well. But it would always run up against impediments and mathematical equations. It just wouldn't work. It wouldn't go beyond what they had already discovered and they couldn't figure out why. And it's because the universe model was just fundamentally wrong. The next slide shows the Copernican uh, view of the universe, which is the one we still hold to today. I mean, our universe. Our knowledge has expanded far beyond Copernicus, but you have the sun at the center. And of course, the earth is out there in the third sphere, if you'd like to call it that. The planets are still there, the same ones that Ptolemy looked at. The stars are still there, the same ones that the ancients looked at. But now the perspective was really just turned upside down. Everything about the way you viewed the universe had changed. And it's hard for us to imagine how dramatic that change must have been. But it had to have been dramatic. People just couldn't get their minds around it. And in reality, you see, nothing had changed. Because the sun still rose and the sun still set. The length of days could still be calculated. Sunrise and sunset could still be calculated. As a matter of fact, when you looked up into the sky, the Big Dipper and Orion's belt were there, just like they always were, in basically the same place. In some ways, nothing seemed to have changed. But we know what grew out of this model, right? What we call modern science today. We know that because of this model, we began to understand things like gravity. And we began to understand physics through... John, uh, Newton and other people and, and all kinds of developments came out of this model of the universe and we with this model of the universe were able to accurately calculate this would have been inconceivable to Ptolemy we were actually accurately able to calculate how to take someone from that earth to the moon all based on mathematical calculations and this model, our world changed forever. I use that as an analogy, and I'll come back to it in a little bit, to suggest that that was a scientific revolution that changed our world. 
I would like to suggest that if we ever understood the depth of Colossians 1, 15 through 23, the depth of the truth in there, and we embraced it fully, it would be a spiritual revolution. Our entire world would change. Of course, it would have to be adopted by faith. But that's what we talk about in the church. I want you to notice, basically, and as you know, we're doing a whole book in one setting, so I'm just taking one section and saying this is the heart of the book. But I want you to notice basically what Paul says in these verses 15 through 23. The first major point is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of God. The image of the invisible God. Now, of course, by that, uh, he didn't mean some of the things that we might assume. That God looks exactly like Jesus in terms of person. What he meant was, if you want to know God, look at the person of Jesus Christ. Because he's the exact representation of the nature and character of God himself. He's not a prophet who spoke about God. He's not a created being who seemed to be holy enough that he was close to God. He was actually God in the flesh and the image of what God was truly like. That was Jesus Christ, says Paul. He might have said this. He might have said, when you thought about God before Jesus Christ, you could recognize in the Hebrew Scriptures His power and His judgment through His mighty acts and mighty works, they were revealed. You might have understood God had you looked at the Hebrew Scriptures and and you could have seen, figuratively I guess, you could have seen some form of love. But you wouldn't have seen the kind of love that was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't have seen, for instance, God reaching out and touching a leper. Or God picking up a child and saying, this is the kingdom of God. Or God allowing a prostitute to wash his feet with her hair. Or God being called a friend of sinners. You wouldn't have seen that before Jesus. But Paul says, I'm telling you, when you see Jesus, you've seen God. And Jesus said it in his own way, right? In the Gospels, especially John. He helped us to understand that he and the Father are one, not just as to mission. But when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, says Jesus. Jesus was the image of the invisible God because Jesus was fully God. That, Paul says, is the first thing I want you to remember. Second thing I want you to remember about Jesus Christ is that he was creator of the universe. He was the agent of creation in this divine trinity. Part of the way Paul describes that is he says he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, very quickly, we could run to a literal interpretation of that, and that would be a problem. 
firstborn over all creation, just left literally as the words stand, indicates something we don't intend to say. It would be firstborn born in time. That is our word for firstborn. It would be born in creation, in time and space only. But firstborn over all creation is not intended in that way, in that sort of flat, literalistic way. It's intended in a far greater way. It's intended in the way that Psalm 89 uses the sovereignty of God in a prophetic passage concerning Jesus according to the church. It's used in a way, contextually, that helps to define it differently than flat literalism. Here's why. Because if you take a look at the text itself, just this text, you'll understand that firstborn doesn't mean to be born in time and born as a creature. End of sentence. Because that same firstborn described in this passage was also the one who was creator. So he was not born as a creature in time, and that was the beginning of his existence. That's what firstborn usually means. Firstborn in this case, can I use this word, is an ontological category. It's a statement concerning the very nature of Jesus Christ. It's a suggestion that he stands above all time and space. He stands above all being as we know it in human relationship. He stands above creation itself. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He goes on to help us understand what he means by firstborn. He says he's the creator of all things, all things that are visible, the stuff of creation, all its creatures. He's the creator of all things, namely those things also that are invisible, all the stuff of science that's invisible, and all the stuff of spirituality that's invisible. He's the creator of all things, including thrones and rulers and dominions and authorities. He didn't leave much out, did he? Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the creator of all things. And then he makes a gigantic statement. This firstborn creator of all things, namely Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of God the Father, all those things were made by him. We've already heard that. And for him. He not only created, but he controls them. He not only blessed them and called them good, but under his divine sovereign control, he uses them to accomplish his will. What does he use to accomplish his will? Those things that were made for him. All dominions, every nation, all thrones, every king, all authorities, even the ones you don't like. They were created by, for, and are His. He's that kind of Lord. So not only is the creator of the universe, He's the image of the invisible God, Paul says he's also the sustainer of all this. He's the sustainer 
of the entire universe. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Every once in a while, uh, when I read the Scripture, no, not every once in a while, a lot of times when I read the Scripture, I get frustrated. And, and I read it a lot, you might expect. I should, right? But I get frustrated. Sometimes my frustration grows out of how I'm not certain I understand. That's just frustrating. I want to understand better. And sometimes my frustration grows out of the fact that I thought I understood and I didn't. I made a fool of myself. That's really frustrating, right? On other occasions, my frustration grows out of the fact that, honestly, I just wish there was more. When I come to this phrase and Paul says he's before all things and all things hold together in him, I say, Paul, tell me more. <laughs> what? What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> That's huge. And in part, I'm left of my imagination. And that's a dangerous place to be. But not just that, I'm left with the rest of the Scriptures, correct? Concerning what it means. And I, I do believe that, among other things, it means this. Uh, there's a pretty famous movie that's out right now, which I haven't um, seen yet, about a really famous scientist who is doing his best to come up with a theory of everything. I'm pretty sure that Paul's words would mean at least this. The theory of everything resides in Jesus. Everything. All of reality. The pulse of life itself. In Him, all things hold together. All things. And what else I believe about this statement and the Scriptures themselves is, is really rather practical. When I discover anything, or when any of us discover anything, there is not only more to discover about that particular subject, but behind whatever discovery we have made, further behind that discovery is the reality of Jesus Christ holding it all together. I don't know how to reach that far. My mind can't go there. But I take it by faith that in Him who is the Creator and Sustainer, all things hold together. So no, no matter what my scientific discovery, and I don't have too many, I just borrow them. <laughs> I should just step back and wonder and say, there's so much more. And Jesus Christ holds it all together. Paul also says concerning Jesus Christ, He's the head of the church. Boy, we could go all kinds of places with that, right? Um, turn that loose in the hands of a preacher and it could get ugly. Um, I, so I won't go everywhere with it, but I will say this. The essence of the church 
is not just to do good. It's not just an institution to advance goodness. There's all kinds of institutions like that. And they're wonderful. And they complement the work of the church. But that's not the essence of the church. The essence of the church is Jesus Christ because He's the head of the church. He is the source of its life and He's the sovereign Lord over it in both senses, head of the church. The essence of the reality of the church is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, if you want to understand the church, understand a body, because the church is the body of Jesus Christ, living and active in the world. And if you're detached from the body, you are not the church. The church is, by extension, Jesus Christ. The church is not our own particular leader. Our most latest charismatic leader. Who speaks on behalf of the church. That's not the church. The church is Jesus Christ. Also, you know, the church isn't our our particular brand of Christianity. There's lots of those. It's clearly not our church. A friend of mine sent me a cartoon this last week or week before or something like that. And I just love this cartoon because I was about ready to do a membership class. And for those of you who can't see, over the left-hand side, it's it's like the history of the church. See how all the branches... all the different churches, the denominations, and the teacher, which will be me in a couple of weeks, or back in the fall, he's pointing to where their movement finally came along. This is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right, he says. And then there's a little guy at the table soaking it all in who says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. I mean, Jesus couldn't get along without us, right? Before we came up with this version of the church called ECC, the whole world was in darkness. And then here we are. You say, no, it's not true. Yeah, it is. Because that's the way we think about ourselves sometimes. And that's the way other churches think about themselves sometimes. They're so unique. They've got it right. They're so unique. They are the church. And Paul says, hold your horses. That's not the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It all flows from him. And it's diverse, and though he doesn't talk about it here, it's, it's all over the world in multiple manifestations. The other and last thing I want to mention that Paul says concerning Jesus Christ is that he's the reconciler of all things. That comes in the last half of this passage. And can I read that once again? He says, once you were alienated from God... And were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope, held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard. 
and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It's, it's once again Paul summarizing the gospel. Whether in Romans or Galatians, as we've seen, or Ephesians, seems like somehow he always gets the same message in there. You're not naturally born looking for God. Oh, you're naturally born with a conscience concerning God, and and God holds you responsible for the conscience concerning Him that He's given. We see that in Romans 1. But your natural inclination is not to run towards and to embrace God. What is your natural inclination, says Paul? It's evil behavior. What is my natural inclination? It's to be a jerk. What's my natural inclination? It's sinfulness. There's a whole bunch of good attributes I've got. I wish you could see some of them, but there really are. I got some. But at 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 the level of my being, way down low, whatever great attributes I have are just, well, they're great, but they're not, they're not really what I was born with. I was born with those things, but my inclination was to use all those things for me. I was born with certain gifts and I've developed certain gifts, but my true inclination is not to use them for the sake of others, but to use them for me. And my tendency is always to go self-centered, not other-centered, not God-centered. That's just my nature. Thankfully, by the grace of God, He's transformed me enough to see above my own nature and to tap into the reality of the nature that He has given me in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, He became sin for us so that we might become like God. To put it in the exact words, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the reconciliation Paul's talking about. It doesn't happen except through Jesus. Because Jesus, remember, as image of the invisible God, as divine righteousness, as all the attributes that we call God, steps into the picture and reconciles us with God who are apart from God because of sin. And He does it in His own body through death and through resurrection. And what's more, Paul says, He's going to do it for all of creation one day. He's going to bring it all back to its right order. So back to the slides. <laughs> you know, our, uh, our, our natural self, I think our world, and we as individuals, I want to adopt a phrase, we're, we're Ptolemaic beings. Hmm? We are the center of our own universe. And we have to fight against it daily. But it's so natural for us to put ourselves right in the middle of all things. You know what's fascinating about the Ptolemaic view of the universe and the Ptolemaic view of ourselves? Lots of good can come from it. 
Wonderful things came from the Ptolemaic view of the universe. And wonderful things could come from the spiritual Ptolemaic view of yourself. And they have. There's so many people who do not, by their own admission, have God and certainly not Jesus Christ as the very center of their lives that are doing remarkable things, wonderful things. But their perspective is wrong. Just like Ptolemy's perspective was wrong. The reality is, Jesus Christ is the center of the universe. And to find yourself fully and to live the way you were created to live is to live with Him as the center and you on the outside. Uh, Embracing this perspective, if we did it, could really change a lot about us, couldn't it? So what difference would it make? This is the practical. I want to affirm certain things I think it would do. But before I say that, I want to say this. Here's something that it shouldn't do. Adopting this viewpoint of Christ, the center of the universe and the center of our lives and being reconciled with God and having Him as our Lord and Savior, it should make me or you assume that being a Christian made us better than our colleagues. Um, it shouldn't make us assume that because Christ is the center of our universe, every person who calls himself or is Christian is the best lawyer or the best doctor or the best historian or the best scientist or the best mechanic. To make such an assumption is completely counterintuitive to this model of our universe. To make such an assumption puts us again at the center of our universe. Even if it's not just us, it puts our colleagues who are Christians at the center of the universe and everything spins around them as if they are the expert on all things and we're not the expert on all things. There's wonderful things to be learned from people who do not have this worldview. However, if I adopt this worldview, and I believe I should, obviously, I'd look at my world with awe and wonder. Every scientific discovery would reveal for me the glory of God. Every understanding of the human condition and psychology would be yet another unlayering of the glory of God. Every new form of technology, my instinct would be, how can I use this for the kingdom of God? Every material blessing that I would ever receive my first question would be, how can I bless others rather than keeping it for myself? 
that's just one way in which my world would change. Other ways, I think if I really embrace this notion deeply, that Christ was the center of all things and the center of my life, I'd be more thankful and I'd complain less. I think I'd be less likely to try to predict the future and more inclined to being faithful about my daily responsibilities. Why? Because God's in control of everything. He's got the future in His hands, and I don't need to know exactly how it's going to work out. Times, dates, or anything else. What I need to know is what I'm called to do today. I think if I adopted this worldview thoroughly, I'd be more patient when things went wrong. Why? Because God in Jesus Christ would be in control of all things. And when things went wrong, they weren't really going wrong. (laughs) Because God was in control of them. I think if I adopted this worldview deeply, quite simply, I would listen more and talk less. Why? Because I would constantly be asking... Not out loud like it was really big and important, but constantly asking quietly to myself, God, what are you trying to teach me? Through this situation? Through that person? My boss, who I despise, who isn't a Christian and does everything from a different worldview. Through my spouse, through my children, through my circumstances, I'd be quiet long enough to ask, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because if Christ is creator of all things, and in Him all things hold together, He's active in my life everywhere. And my position should be eyes wide open, heart wide open, and asking God, what do you want to teach me today? Boy, that would change my day. It'd change Monday. My wife would think she got a new new husband. (laughs) My kids would think they got a new father. You'd think you got a new pastor. But that's how we're called to live. Will we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Because Monday I'll be right back to me as the center of the universe. But are we called to it? Absolutely. Because that's why we... How and how, how and why, we find true meaning in this universe, which is held together by Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for the revelation of your word, and um, especially the revelation in the body of Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that we're not the center of the universe because it would be all about us. We give you thanks because we would be trying to create meaning all on our own. We give you thanks because we'd have to control all events. We give you thanks because 
if we were the center of the universe, it'd be a mess. So Lord, we just thank you that you're the center of all things. And you ask us to recognize it and redefine our reality around it and to follow you by faith. It's not easy to do. So as we leave this place today, we pray for your grace and your insight that you'll help us to identify the truth and you'll help us to follow you the way, the truth, and the life. In whose name we pray. Amen.